0: And I think all that stuff kind of crowds out the possibility that, hey, maybe part of finding myself would be to use my athletic gifts uh, and talents and, and try them at the highest possible level.
1: What's up, everyone? Skylar Butts here. This week on the podcast, I had my college coach, Paul Settles, on. He had a tremendous impact on my tennis career, and I have some great memories because of him. He doesn't exactly have the most traditional route to D3 college coaching, so I hope you enjoy hearing his pro to D3 story. Hi, coach. How are you? I'm doing great, Skylar. How about you? I'm pretty good. Never thought we'd be doing
0: this. I did not envision this... uh when you were playing for CMS as a stack. But its yeah. I got to say, being on the other end of this, this call is uh, pretty cool. Yeah,
1: feels like I'm recruiting you, actually, a little bit. Uh, hopefully you are, <laughs> you know? I hope I impress you. Yeah, well, you will. So I'm about four years out of graduation, and I still don't know if I should call you Coach or Paul.
0: Yeah, so I get that one from... um the students in my academic classes too, they're like, do we call you coach? Do we call you professor? Do we call you Paul? Yeah. And I used to make this joke, um, that your older listeners will appreciate. And I used to say, you can call me anything you want, just don't call me collect. Um, but you know, none of your generation, Skylar, gets the joke. So, um, you can, you now have permission to call me Paul. So okay. I'm happy with that.
1: I've been calling you Paul behind your back this whole time, so. <laughs> <laughs> I either,
0: yeah, even some of our
1: current players are calling me Paul now, which is fine. Which oh, wow. I'm cool with it. Okay, that's good. So has anyone taken a deep dive into your life before? I've, I, I saw you've had two podcast experiences. Um,
0: I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm, I'm trying to remember like the long, the, the, deepest dive, like with the media, and I would have to go back to my ATP days. I remember doing, doing a long form interview with a media outlet. And I remember I was in Shanghai, and I couldn't sleep. So I knocked this thing out. And it must have taken me like four or five hours to, to put all the responses to these questions. And I think you can still find it somewhere oh. online. But that's probably the deepest dive I've ever done. And that was about my, you know, my other career. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, nobody's really asked too many deep questions about what the last 17 years have been about. So,
1: All right. This going to be fun then. Yeah, let's go. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. All right. Take me back. How'd you get started in tennis? I don't think you've ever had a job outside of tennis. Is that true?
0: Uh, I actually have. Okay. Do, you, do you want to get to that now or do you want to, should we go back uh, to the beginning?
1: Let's start at the beginning. Okay. Give the people what they want.
0: Yeah. My introduction to tennis um, was, I think, like most, um, through, through my family, um, youngest of three children. Um, my dad was an avid player. He played tournaments. He played at the local public parks um when the economy was down he taught tennis lessons um so he was he was kind of a tennis nut and he used to take me to uh, a local public park in Glendale California and on the weekends and i would just watch he and his his doubles cronies play basically every saturday uh for 2 hours and it was the highlight of his week he loved it um, he dragged me along, um, and at the very end, of course, you know, he'd get out there and hit two or three balls with me, and that's kind of how I fell in love with tennis. Um, so, started started at the public parks, and then when I was old enough to start taking lessons, probably at eight or nine, and uh, it was from a former Wimbledon champion. In fact, um, one of the most decorated Wimbledon champions of all time, Louise Bruff. Um, in South Pasadena and I took like two years of lessons from her. She taught me incredibly classic sort of strokes. Uh, that's that's really who taught me the game. And then, you know, my dad, my older brother, my older sister, my mom all played. So, a lot of family gatherings around tennis. First tournament was about age 10 here in Southern California. I played in the 10 and unders for about a year um, and then worked my way up through uh, Southern California junior tennis, um, grew up in, in a very, uh, rabid UCLA household where we love going to all UCLA sporting events, football, basketball, every dual match we could go to at the old sunset 10, uh, Canyon courts. But when I got to be around high school age, I knew, you know, I was good. Uh, I was top 20 in Southern California, but I, I knew I probably couldn't play at the level UCLA uh, required, So started looking east. and uh, lo and behold, some Ivy League schools started recruiting me and uh, made my way to the University of Pennsylvania and, in Philadelphia. And uh, played four years of college tennis there and had a phenomenal career. It was an awesome experience for me. Being a Southern California kid, never really been outside of Southern California. Got to go to the East Coast, uh, start for four years, captain my senior year, uh, played on some, some pretty good teams, had a chance to make NCAAs as my senior uh, as a senior in singles and devils, came up a little bit short, and also played with some really good um, players during that era. Um, Larry Scott is now commissioner of the Pac-12, uh, was playing for Harvard at the time. So that was the beginning of, uh, of a long friendship that we still have today. Uh, with him. And yeah, had a great, great career at at Penn. And then after Penn, uh, decided to play um, some low-level pro tennis uh, after graduation. In those days, and I'm sure we'll come back to this, but they were called satellites, not futures. So you had to commit to four weeks of tennis and four weeks of tournaments. And to get any ATP points, you had to actually play all four weeks. So after graduation in 1987 from Penn, my brother and I hit the European satellite circuit. We played two satellites there. I think at that point, we knew it wasn't going to be a career. We were doing it for experience and for fun. And at the same time, I was kind of figuring out, all right, well, what's what's next? Um, I had an opportunity to go to grad school um, I had spent part of my senior year for semester in Cambridge, England, uh, at, a, at a program at Cambridge, an economics program there. Um, fell in love with the place, fell in love with the university and thought, man, it'd be fun to postpone reality one more year and go back to grad school. So I ended up applying to, to Cambridge in their law program, um, did a one year master's in law at cambridge and found out when i got there that they have seven years of eligibility um, in england not four like the us so i was like oh great i get to keep doing this for fun so as a grad student at cambridge i played i think i played something like 50 dual matches it might have been more it was crazy but i played a ton of tennis most of it was on grass all of our home matches were on grass weather permitting um, and that's where I sort of developed my game style, which is, um, more of a attacking serve and volley, take the return, come in, um, don't let the ball bounce sort of style. And, uh, yeah. Uh, so that was, that was one of kind of my favorite years of, of playing competitive tennis after I finished it at Cambridge, started, started looking for work. Um, you want me to keep going, right?
1: Up to you. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Okay, <laughs> that's the this is this is the most I've ever heard you talk about your your college career. I don't think I ever knew you were close to making it to NCAA's. I was close, you know, year. and with
0: you know, your, your memory plays tricks on you. Probably closer now than I was actually at the time. <laughs> but I I, I remember <laughs> playing a couple matches where I was like, man, if I win this match, I think I'm going to qualify for NCAA's. Um, So, Mm -hmm. it was, yeah, it was close. But anyhow, my my experience both as an undergraduate player and as a graduate player um, were phenomenal Uh, team experiences. I think they helped really form me as the coach that I am today because um, it was a lot of hands-on training. I think in, in college as an undergrad, I played for a coach who was a phenomenal personal mentor but had pretty much checked out on the tennis side. So, it gave me a lot of perspective into, shoot, if I was coaching this team, how would I do it? How would I maximize the experience? And, and at the time, at, at the time, it was a little bit frustrating. I look back on it now in the rearview mirror and I'm like, that's what helped me become a coach, you know, and that's, that's, that's where, you know, that's where I kind of earned my reps. Um, as an undergrad, being on a team where I had to sort of fend for myself. Um, and then when you get to grad school, especially in the UK, you realize they have no coaches. They have, they have two positions in college tennis there. They have what they call as a secretary. Secretary basically puts the schedule together, uh, all these fixtures, as they call them, with other college teams and other clubs and all the rest. And then there's a captain, and that's a, that's a playing position. Uh, much like the captain on, you know, the college teams that, that you've played for. So, they, when I got to Cambridge, the, for some reason, they thought I was organized, so they made me the secretary. <laughs> so <laughs> You are organized. Well, I, there's, there's another <laughs> funny story about that. Um, but, you know, I so I, I created the schedule for our, for our graduate school team, made it, you know, every bit as aggressive as, as the schedules that you played during your four years. Yep. Um, Lots we played a ton and we loved it. Um, and famously, one time I, I double booked us where I'd forgotten that I'd actually invited two teams to play on the same date. And they both showed up on our home courts at the same time. And that was incredibly embarrassing. So I think I think they were yeah. sort of scratching their heads saying, why did we make this guy the secretary? But anyhow, um, but those were, again, the the undergrad and the grad Um, experiences I think were great, both in terms of organization and in terms of how to run a team and how to run a practice and how to get the most out of practice were really, um, really important experiences for me for what I'm doing now.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So it sounds like you got a law degree, but you, you were really like (laughs) minoring and coaching over there. I pl- I played a lot of tennis. I played a lot of yeah.
0: tennis. Um, I drank a few pints of lager and I and I wrote a thesis. Uh, probably in that order. Um,
1: yeah. Yep. I well, I hear <laughs> I hear school a little different over there than it is in the U.S.
0: Uh, it is. It is, and it it suited my my style. I mean, I I think I work pretty well independently without a ton of structure, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that schedule kind of allows you to create your own structure and it was you know super rewarding being able to write a thesis and and go through that discipline as well
1: so Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and i thought it was interesting that you said you you forged your attacking game on on those grass courts in in cambridge i i would have assumed that would have happened earlier what was your what was your play style in college
0: i think it started it's It started earlier. I mean, you know, Southern California players, at least in the 70s, when I was growing up and playing, had this um, reputation of everybody was a certain volleyer and a fast court player and attacking, whatever. You know, I think I learned that style growing up to some extent. I quickly realized when I got to college, I wasn't going to be a grinder. I wasn't going to stay out and sort of outlast guys and play 30-ball rallies and and win those points, counter-punching and playing defense. So I Mm -hmm. And because we played probably half of our matches indoors, I had to learn how to really attack in those circumstances. But it wasn't until I started playing a lot on grass where I really forced myself literally not to let the ball bounce. You know, I would, I was taking returns on the rise, coming in and just saying, I'm going to take the ball out of the air before you do. And, um, it's fun. It's a fun way to play.
1: Still, still playing to that way to this day. I am. I am. Yeah. It must really bother you that most of the guys are, are standing a hundred feet back grinding (laughs) at the D3 level.
0: Sometimes it does, but I think part of the rewarding aspect of of coaching is is taking some of those game styles and being able to add new elements to it. And I think, you know, I bring kind of a different element than a lot of other coaches do to uh, to sort of the, you know, the traditional counterpuncher or defensive type player. You know, I would hope you would say that, you know, after four years playing for me, that, that you added some things to your game, you know, that probably you hadn't even thought of, you know, before coming to college.
1: I mean, I would say I added a ton of stuff to my game <laughs> throughout college. I look back at my freshman year and I, I don't think I made a volley for like half the half the semester. And I definitely couldn't serve. So we fixed a few things. We
0: fixed a few things. There's still a few more things to fix, right?
1: There's always things to <laughs> fix. That's what I'm learning. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we'll get into that later. Um, right now we can, I guess this is where after postgrad in Cambridge you do you write a letter to someone to get your job at the ATP. I vaguely remember discussing yeah. that.
0: Yeah. So finished up in July with my degree July of 88 and I'm sitting around trying to figure out all right, I've got this law degree, like I hate law. <laughs> I don't th- I don't think I don't think I want to go into this profession. Um, so now what? Now what do I do? And I kind of identified, hey, you know what? I really, wh- what my passions really uh, gravitate to are sports and music. Um, at the time, I was heavily influenced uh, by blues, jazz and blues music. So I was thinking, oh, it'd be really cool to be able to work for a jazz or blues label. So I started writing letters to letters to jazz and blues labels in the U.S. Um, with very little response. So that didn't really pan out too well, but it was a great experience in, in trying to show some initiative and creativity. And then I, I just basically identified every sporting team that I was interested in and every sport I was interested in. And one of the letters I ended up writing was um, to uh, a member of the ATP Player Council, uh, served as a, a board of directors uh, representative, uh, Weller Evans, who is still real involved. In fact, he was a player <laughs> board rep for six months uh, this past year. So I wrote him a letter that he responded to and he said, he looked at my resume and my letter and, and said, hey, you know, I, I read this letter and I see a little bit of myself about 10 years ago. And he had graduated from Princeton and was kind of a, a tennis fanatic and played satellites and every open tournament he could get into and all the rest. And he said, uh, you know, your timing is great. This was the end of the 80s, uh, ATP had just kind of taken over this, this revolution uh, in men's professional tennis. And now we're going from a, a, a third share of governing the sport to 50% share. So, and with that, um, the ATP was going to handle basically all the, the governing and sanctioning aspects of the tour. Um, so they needed, they needed people to work and they needed, uh, they needed to expand. So he had this idea that, you know, I could come in and, and work in his department in player services and basically travel from tournament to tournament and work with the players, um, in a lot of different, a lot of different areas. So, uh, one thing led to another. Um, I was able to interview with him when he was off the road. I mean, the other part of that story is, you know, he called me and he said, hey, I'm going to be on the road for the next six weeks, but when I get back, (laughs) let's get together and we can have an interview. And that I quickly learned like that was kind of the lifestyle. You know, he he basically traveled as the players did. He would travel like on a six week circuit and then come back and have three days off and then head back out. Um, so interviewed um, again, the timing was perfect and um, they decided to hire me. Um, Got my car, drove across the country uh, to Jacksonville, Florida, Ponte Vedra Beach, the, the new headquarters of the ATP. And I started in April of 1989 and worked uh, in the player services department um, in just about every aspect and eventually ended up being kind of the senior member of that uh, player services department up until 2003 when I accepted the job at, uh, at uh, Claremont McKenna and CMS.
1: We need to back up for a second because I did not realize you had that strong of an interest in music.
0: Yeah. In, in college, I mean, I, you know, I, I think
1: healthy interests
0: like a lot of college kids do. Um, I was, again, really influenced by my dad um, who um, in some cases literally dragged me to jazz gigs in the Hollywood and LA area. And after he dragged me there a few times, I actually really started enjoying it. So we would go to the Hollywood Bowl and uh, these little clubs all over LA. And I really just became a jazz fan. And then when I was in college, I took two jazz classes that were amazing. And then from that, I sort of developed a, an interest in, in blues, Chicago blues, Texas blues. And I would say between college and probably. I don't know, five or six years into my, my work with the ATP, I was, I was going to probably 25, maybe 30 gigs a year. Wow. All over, all over the world too, because you know, every, every tournament I worked for the tour, I would basically look and see, all right, well, who's playing here?
1: Um, so, Mm.
0: so it was fun, really fun pursuing that.
1: Did you ever play any instruments yourself or? Never. You were just a fan? Never. (laughs) just a fan you never it it never occurred to you or you you know it just
0: i i feel like some people are just sort of born born with that but i never really had a desire i just loved listening to it loved being a fan Mm -hmm. um but no never played an
1: instrument yeah you're lucky i my mom put me in piano and it's not fun (laughs) it was not for me yeah yeah,
0: lots of times those go the other way, right?
1: Yeah. Looking back right now, I wish I I enjoyed it and stuck with it, but it wasn't meant to be. Mm-hmm. Sports sports are for me. I've I've come to realize that. Well,
0: I I'm I've come to realize that too, and I'm I'm so glad that's you know, that's the fork in in the road that was offered to me. Um mm-hmm. because right. I I you know, I think it would have been fun to be in the music industry, but uh being in sports and especially the jobs that I've held in tennis, um, I can't imagine them being any better.
1: Mm-hmm. And how, how was it being around all those high-level players all the time? Um,
0: it was it was pretty incredible. I mean, I, I paused to answer that because there, I think there's kind of two dimensions to that. I mean, you, you really develop in that role, you really have to develop relationships with them so you you get mm-hmm. to know them as as people you know um you know conversations that you'll have with the with the players on tour in the locker room sometimes you can forget that they're tennis players you you, you there are conversations that you would ha- that you and I would have that uh, you would have with a roommate or a or a neighbor or a friend um so on on that level, it was it was really really rewarding to develop some great relationships that still kind of persist to this day. Like, you know, I would I would say even though Todd Martin and I don't talk more than you know three or four times during the year, I would I would have said you know we were we were really close while he was playing on tour. Um, mm-hmm. Same with Mal Washington. Um, same with, you know, a, 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 lot of, a lot of top guys and not necessarily Americans too, you know, it was, I was, I had great relationships with, with players from a bunch of different countries. So on that level is really cool. And then I, I think on the professional side, and again, things that sort of laid the groundwork for me, I think to be, to be the, the kind of coach that I am today is just, You know, watching them practice, watching um, watching them be professional. How do they prepare for matches? How do they interact with their coach? How do they interact with fans, with the media, with sponsors? All that stuff was just incredibly educational on a day to day basis. And I think you uh, you know, on a on a real practical level, for what I do now with my teams, just really watching the top pros and how they how they practice. Um, never gets old for me. Um, I think mm-hmm. they have such such a great sense for the importance of time, and maximizing it, and being efficient out there, and just making every second count. And that's something that, as you know, um, I've carried very close to me uh, for a long time. Now that's that's really important to me.
1: Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that you said that about the the tour players because. I think you just brought it up that she she played in one of those wta events and she was around some big names and i mean you see them on tv you're growing up and i mean at the end of the day they're just people that happen to be able to hit the ball really well (laughs) and have spent a lot of time on the court and i think that gets lost a lot especially for me like when i i played some at the time they weren't top 100 but now i see them on tv playing and they were just regular guys but they're, I mean, they're uber talented and they work hard and I think I think that gets lost on a lot of people when, especially when you said like they're signing autographs, they have to deal with the media. There's a lot of components and like, they're human at the end of the day. And if they, if they don't sign something and they, they walk off and someone's frustrated and they rant at them on Twitter, they can take it personally. Just they're not superhuman.
0: Yeah, no. I mean, that's, that's, that's so true um and you know the top pros the mid-range pros even the lower pros you know there are a lot of people who want a piece of their time and um it really it can really stretch you as a, as a human right mm-hmm. um because i think we're all sort of naturally we're all sort of naturally bent towards you know serving ourselves and in, in that position, especially in a sport, which, you know, for it to grow and, and flourish requires that everybody do a little bit extra as part of, as part of the growth of the sport. So it's, you know, those are, those are important lessons for, for the pros to, to learn and to be good at. And, you know, it's, it's really cool to see the, the best of those, you know, do it so well. The other thing about the, the, the playing aspect for me, which really was driven home, was you know, I had, I had opportunities in my career as in player services to hit um, a couple times with Sampras, a um, couple times with um, Henri Leconte from France. And then I remember my, my last three weeks on tour before i took the cms job um i was hitting with uh, mark philopoulos i think i hit with him like six times in the last two weeks we were in asia together and i was amazed again to the professionalism um these guys are playing with someone who's not like one level lower but like 5 to 10 to 15 levels lower than me they're hitting with a tour mm-hmm. manager and yet their demeanor, their disposition, their focus, engagement, all that stuff is no different than if they were playing with the number two ranked guy in the world. And that spoke volumes to me, uh, that they could mm-hmm. they could treat me just as if because their time was so precious um, in the same way that they would treat a, a fellow pro. And I learned a lot from that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I think you, you really made that a priority when I was learning from you. Throughout my four years, I took that to heart, and I, I still keep that with me today. Just every every moment on court is is precious, and whoever I'm hitting with, it, they deserve my full attention. So I, I I appreciate you instilling that in me, and it's 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 good to hear that it came from the top.
0: Yeah, I think I think you need the experience with someone who's like at a higher level than you. Um, to really have it driven home. And that's, and that's what I had. I mean, and I, I remember I have such fond memories of, of the opportunities I did have to like hit with Sampras. I hit with Rafter one time. I hit again with LeConte. And how nervous I was on a court, just like
1: I was just going I was just about to ask you about like, that. <laughs> God, I'm just,
0: you know, I'm this lowly tour manager who you know can't even get an ATP point on a satellite, and I'm hitting with like one of the greatest players of all time. I can't make a mistake here, and just I'd never <laughs> been more tight in my life. But somehow, yeah. you know, was able to give him a good warm up, and and uh, yeah,
1: yeah. it's it's funny like we've we've been on both ends as players i'm sure you've experienced this you're hitting with a lower level guy we don't really care if they miss why why would someone who's better than us care if we if we make a mistake exactly
0: exactly (laughs) right Yeah. yeah so
1: but we don't realize that um and your your job at the atp you were you were basically there to oversee and take care of the players right
0: yeah, as it was kind of a multifaceted role, and just again, I think one of the best jobs in in tennis. Um, there was a competitive aspect to it, so we were responsible for going in and making sure that the competition was done according to the rule book and in fairness to the players. So we were we were witness, and in most cases, made the draws each week at tournaments. We were heavily involved in making the order of play. In fact, we generated the order of play and then we had to get buy-in and consensus from the other constituents in order to finalize the order of play every day. I loved that part of the job because it was basically a new puzzle every, you know, each and every day of the job yeah. where you're balancing... You know, the interests of sponsors and television and a live audience, um, players who are playing singles and doubles, a player who played the night session last night, but has to play today. So, you know, how are we going to give them enough rest? And just this, you know, multi-variable problem that you have to figure out every day but is, is really satisfying when you, when you get it right and excruciating when you make a mistake and know that you can't undo it. So that was a part mm-hmm. of the job that I, I, I loved. And then, you know, I referenced earlier, just we spent a lot of time in the locker room talking to players and figuring out like, all right, how do we make this job better for you? You know, how, you know, is our retirement plan, is it good? You know, do the insurance benefits need to be better? Um, is the prize money distribution fair? You know, are doubles players getting enough promotion? You know all these issues that have persisted, you know now 17 years after I've left are still relevant yeah. but um, are still important. And um, you know that was just a really fun and important part of the job that
1: uh, that I loved as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, never a dull day. I'm sure. No, and that's and that's
0: the thing. You're exactly right. Like every week was different. You know, um, yeah. you know, different surface, different set of the tournament directors and staff, different players, um, sometimes a different continent. Um, so it it was constantly changing and never ever got bored.
1: Did you enjoy the travel?
0: I I I really did. Like when I was. You know, when I started the job and I started traveling when I was 23 and man, I, I could not get to as many, enough tournaments, you know, I mean, and my boss Weller, you know, like would schedule me for 32 events and I do like eight weeks in a row and I loved it as a young single person, you know, you're seeing the world and you're getting to work with the top players and top coaches and top tournaments and all these places that you've you've seen from your living room couch. Um, and it's, it's really cool. And then once you've done that for a couple of years and, you know, other parts of your life start evolving, uh, in my case, you know, I was in a serious relationship. Now my wife, we start a family. It becomes obviously more and more challenging. I, I tell the story often that, that when Kathy and I were, were courting one another, she had started working for the tour as well. I went on an eight-week trip. Um, she went on a six-week trip, and there was like some overlap in there. So we ended up not seeing each other for like three months. Wow. <laughs> um, and that was kind of par for the course, you know, back back then. So that 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 got tough after a while. And obviously, when we started a family, um, I had to pare my travel uh, down a little bit. But even my last year before coming to CMS in 2003, I think I worked probably 215 220 days of the year on on the roads that's
1: that's a lot of travel with three you know
0: three kids under the age of five at home so um Mm -hmm. but that's just kind of the nature of that job if if you're not out there interacting with the athletes um it's hard to be relevant
1: yeah and i guess yeah 2003 you make you make the leap into coaching where were you expecting to land in Claremont, or were you looking at other schools? Um, I wasn't even looking for a new job. Yeah, no, I mean, just happened. I,
0: I I loved what I was doing. Um, I did have this thought in the back of my mind. Yeah, I'm traveling. You know, 220 days a year, and I've got three under the age of five at home. Probably not the best situation mm-hmm. for our family and for our marriage. But I had it in my mind that. You know, it'd be really fun to be a coach someday, but that someday in my mind was like ten years later. Uh, and I just happened to be at the U.S. Open in 2003, and I was on online, kind of looking around. I was at the NCAA site and saw that the the job for Claremont had come available, and I was like, oh, you know, I uh, I remember Claremont. That's I used to play junior tournaments there, and the coach, Hank Krieger, um, his son was one of my best friends. So there were all these points of, uh, of interest uh, for me. And I thought, what the heck? Why don't, I, why don't I inquire a little bit further? So I sent actually sent a resume in from the U.S. Open. Second week, Thinks it slowed down. So I had a little time to do some stuff. And uh, I can remember getting a call within... 36 hours from Mike Sutton, um, athletic director at the time. We talked for a couple hours about what I was doing with the ATP. And Mike, you know, to his credit, had been kind of a real outside the box sort of thinker in in his hiring. Um, He had hired a few years earlier for CMS's um, head Men's soccer coach position, a guy who had basically played in the MLS for nine, ten years but had no coaching formal coaching experience. Dan Kalichman. And Dan was fantastic coach, in fact, is so great. He's now in the MLS as associate head coach for Toronto, who reached the MLS yeah. Cup final last year. So yeah, so Mike, you know Mike felt like, hey, this is maybe a candidate we could take a chance on. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I'd love to come and check it out and come for an interview and all the rest. But I'm going to Asia for three weeks. I got hit with philipusis every day. So, <laughs> um, so, we arranged it and he said, hey, we'll wait. So, went to Asia, worked three events in Asia um, on the way back, swung through Claremont while regionals was happening. Watched uh, some, some guys who I'd be coaching, you know, three or four months later. Play in regionals for a day, interviewed for a day, um, and then again within about thirty six hours, they they called with a with a job offer and said, "Hey, we'll give you three days to think about this, but uh, we want to offer you the job." And that was that was tough. That was that was a great problem to have, but it was really tough because mm-hmm. again, I felt like how how am I going to have a better job than what I have right now? But I'm constrained because you know we've got a a young family, and I want I want to be able to tuck them in at night and and say prayers and and uh, you know uh, have family dinners and all that stuff that was really important to me. And I I saw this as an opportunity to to do that to kind of trade up on family life and be home for all those important things. So Kathy and I kind of took that leap of faith and said, yeah let's let's give this a try even though there were there were a lot of things telling us that maybe we shouldn't do it and as i like to say i haven't regretted it for a nanosecond it's been you know an incredible experience and and yes there there is a better job out there and it's it's coaching at the d3 (laughs) level
1: yeah and we we have a lot to talk about there but before before i do what was what was the hardest part about leaving the atp was there a favorite tournament I know you obviously loved hitting with Filipuses every day.
0: I think the hardest part was it was it was a situation that really didn't have any downsides other than the fact that Dad was traveling a bunch and and couldn't be probably the husband that I I needed to be and the father I needed to be mm-hmm. and and though that's obviously huge and and was a game changing reason for me to to do it but otherwise you know we had a great great group of friends i loved my coworkers. they challenged me every day i loved the job it was constantly changing and and invigorating and it ignited my passions it was all it was all good but um i still felt this tug that hey there's something else out there for me uh and for our family and um And let me see if there's another side to what I do that that can be even better.
1: Mm -hmm. And the D three, I mean, just coaching college sports in general. I mean, every every year is different. So there's that aspect that was quite similar. I mean, granted, it wasn't every week is different, but in some capacity, yeah.
0: And you know, just coming into coaching, I remember, I remember when I got off the job and accepted, I was like oh my gosh, now I have to figure out how to coach. (laughs) You know, I I talked, you know, I talked this great game in the interview about, you know, being around, you know, the best players in the world and the best coaches in the world and observing what they, what they do and kind of understanding, you know, how they prepare. But then when it, when I started
1: thinking about it, I was like, I don't know how to run a college practice. But you, but you had experience in, in the UK.
0: Um, I did, I did. Yeah. Um, you're right. But, uh, it was a little more frightening thinking that, that I was the guy that they were going to look to and not just, um, appear running a, running a practice. Um, so anyhow, um, it was, so it was funny. I I remember getting, getting the job offer, accepting it. And then I had a, a good buddy who I would play tennis with when I was off the road who was the head coach at the university of North Florida. And I remember calling him up and saying, all right, I'm coming over. You got to, you got to give me a crash course in how to be a college tennis coach in about two hours.
2: <laughs>
0: so I went over to the UNF and he ran me through a bunch of drills and some fitness and uh, team building. And it was, it was phenomenal. His name was Thomas Schrader. And ironically enough, after I accepted the job at CMS about two months later, with one of the vacancies that my departure created, he ended up leaving UNF and taking a job at the ATP and he's been in players he's been in player services ever since. Oh wow. So we have this That's this cool. really kind of fun bond of uh coaching and and kind of doing the same job.
1: That's awesome. So how were those first couple of years for you coming in? I mean, I, you, you've been around the best players in the world. I can imagine coming in and coaching a bunch of D three guys was kind of a culture shock.
0: It was, it was, um, to some extent, but I, I, will tell you, um, I was surrounded. I, I, there were a couple things. Um, one, I think, my background immediately commanded the respect of the players that I inherited. I think they, they sort of looked at me and said, oh, my gosh, how do we get this guy as a coach? Like, he, you know, he was hitting with Phil Poussis two weeks ago. And, <laughs> you know, he's been around all the best players in the world and all the best coaches. Like, we're the luckiest program ever. And I don't think they knew that I really didn't know that much. But um, but I had just some different experiences, but because I think that background commanded their respect, I think we were able to to form a really close bond. Um, they were incredibly coachable that, that that first group, and I think the other thing is it was a great mix. You know, we had my captain um, was a senior, John Michael Chamacoon, who is just a phenomenal tennis mind and very he was very wise beyond his years and a great player so he kind of served as really my assistant coach and was very natural as a, as a player doing that and then we had a bunch of freshmen um, so we had a really young group who i knew i was going to have for for four years so it was actually the the perfect mix um to be you know, to, to experience some success early on. I think they really helped me become a good coach, especially John Michael, mm-hmm. who was, um, yeah, as I said, just a phenomenal tennis mind.
1: Yeah. Still a great player. Mm-hmm. Even to this day. That's cool. So you were able to grow, grow with the team.
0: Definitely. Definitely. And, um, yeah, and I, you know, I had some great mentors and some great, uh, some great help in in you know in that first year. You know, I, I I leaned on, as I said, Coach Tom Schrader at UNF. I leaned heavily on Brian Godfrey, who was the director of player services or director of of tennis at the ATP at the time too, and worked with all the touring pros. He helped me with a lot of sort of live ball type training. Um, so. When I when it got to the Encore stuff, I actually felt pretty prepared. It was the other stuff that was that was a little a little bit new. I would say, you know, understanding all the rules of college tennis, understanding you know recruiting, um, all that all that sort of stuff. But I felt like my ATP job really prepared me administratively for the job, and then I, I got some great Encore coaching from a couple key people
1: were you were you as an aggressive scheduler in your first couple of years? How many matches were the guys playing?
0: I wasn't no if you look back at that first year um I think we played uh i think we played twenty four matches my first year so we were i think we were seventeen and seven and You know, I didn't know things like, hey, how many dates do you get? How many matches can you play? I just had to ask a million questions because I was the new guy. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, fortunately, we were able to add some pretty cool experiences my first year because of ATP connections. I remember adding a match uh, early in my first year. In fact, the first match we played was against Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And the coach at the time was Trevor Croneman, now director of of junior tennis for Southern Cal Tennis Association. And Trevor was, you know, an old buddy who I'd worked with at the ATP um, and and had gone to college, you know, with with your coach, uh, Mike Saunders, and and my wife, Kathy. Um, So, that connection kind of helped with scheduling. And then um, also through my connections out at the BNP and Indian Wells, um, having worked with those tournament directors for years, they invited me to bring my team and a couple other teams to come out and play matches during the tournament. So we ended up playing two dual matches in the middle of uh, of Indian Wells my first year with Whitman and Colgate, which ended up being incredible experiences for for our players and their players too. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I went back through the archives yesterday and I mean, we've done well as a program the last, well, just pretty much always pretty much done well as a program, but 2005 was kind of a, a down year. That was the the last time we lost the Skyyak match. Was that a challenging year for you as a coach?
0: Well, I think that year was, more than anything else the the effects that i talked about a minute ago you had this incredibly wise beyond his years captain um, really kind of serving as a playing assistant coach and helping really to mentor a a young inexperienced coach like myself Mm -hmm. so he graduates um, and there's immediately sort of a, a, a playing uh, leadership void. And then you got all these young guys. We had four freshmen starting for us my first year. Now they're sophomores, but they're still young. So I think with that leadership void, and I remember I had a sophomore as my captain my second year, I think, I think it was a team that was a little bit rudderless That just, you know, I, I, at that time, I still didn't, I I still wasn't as me, I I, I might have been confident, but I wasn't nearly as good or as experienced a coach as I am now. So I was still learning a ton. And um, I think kind of really helping them believe in how good they were was, was more of a challenge because the team was young and we didn't have that, that senior leadership. And you know, and that's when I, and that's also when I started kind of scheduling crazily too. You know, we, I, <laughs> I, I remember making a real mistake that year. That was a year we ended up, I think, fifteen and thirteen. We finished third in in conference, um, but we made a mistake early in the season because I scheduled all these D ones to start off the year, and I had a young team that that didn't really know. What it was like to win because they'd been getting beat up by all these d1 teams and i remember mm-hmm. thinking yeah that was that was a rookie move by me like i shouldn't do that again but again it's gotten better yeah
1: well we look we learned from our mistakes that's right? right yeah so was there a year that you kind of had this big i mean granted it was probably it was probably a progressive thing but was there a year where you you felt like you really Got into things coaching wise, and saw the program take a turn to what it is now.
0: I felt like, you know, I think I felt like we had an extraordinary amount of success in my first year, which was a little bit lucky. You know, all the all the ingredients were kind of in place. Um, and then the second year, we got a little bit exposed because we we lacked some some key leadership. And then my third year, we landed this this incredible recruiting class with Larry Wang and Guy Schills. And these guys immediately just brought swagger to the program. And they were really, really good. They pushed everybody else to be better. Um, and so I think that was kind of the first turning point, um, where, you know, we had some legitimate depth and some real, real strength at the top. That was probably the first turning point. And then I would say the next turning point probably wasn't for another five, six years after that, maybe even longer. And I vividly remember our athletic director, Mike Sutton, telling me, hey, you know, things won't really click for you as a head coach until about your 12th year. And he, was, tell- he wow. was telling me this, like, in my eighth year. And I was like, yeah, I've got all this figured out. You know, we're doing great. We're, you know, we're top three in the nation and we're winning conference titles and we're going to the final four of NCAAs and all this stuff. Like, I got this. Like, how hard is this? Yeah. A- and he said, no, you're going to need 12 years to really figure it out. And then, you know, sure enough, 2015, you're on the national championship team. And that was uh, that was year 12.
1: No way. Wow.
0: And he reminded me because he was at our celebration when we won, we won the team title. He said, he said, I told you it was going to be 12 years until you figured this out. And I, I kind of went back in my mind and I was kind of thinking, like, how much have I learned since in the last four years since he told me about that? And I thought, man, I've just learned a ton. And I still feel like that's the case. Like, I'm, now I'm in year 17, and I feel like I still have so much more to learn. Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps the job so exciting. Um, and it's exciting knowing that you're, you know, you're gaining just a little bit more mo- knowledge every single every single year.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's good for young coaches to hear that it takes 12 years to really hit your stride. You've never spoken about that before. I didn't, I wasn't aware. Yeah, I and I would... You know,
0: it's, this is a little embarrassing for me to say publicly, but I, I think I coming in, I had almost a false arrogance. Like I was going to figure this thing out in, in a couple of years and be winning national championships like every year. I can remember, you know, sending emails to recruits and saying, Hey, you know, it's our goal to be winning national, you know, NCAAs two years from now. And that was as a first year coach thinking, like, how hard can this be? You know, I've been working on the tour for the last 15 years. This is going to be easy. And the reality is, you know, a lot of things have to happen. There are phenomenal coaches at the D3 level. As we all know, there are phenomenal players. Um, And there's some luck involved, too.
1: Yeah, I I think we both know firsthand that it's hard winning a national championship. took us a few tries.
0: Yeah, it's really hard, and uh, and I think the other thing we would say is is the pursuit of that is uh, is what makes it so much fun too. Um, it's, yeah, it's it's definitely definitely the journey. Um, you know, I I can remember when when we won with your team in twenty fifteen and thinking, is that it? Like all that work, and now like why don't I feel like more you know more ecstatic? Yeah. But I think it really is like just getting there, is uh, is what is so so rewarding about
1: it. Mm-hmm. Well, especially I don't know how Warren felt. I was I was excited when we won, but we had to go to bed pretty early, <laughs> 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 the to to prepare for individuals. But I I don't think there's anything like it. The the build up throughout the seasons. I mean, for us, it was kind of a three year build up and it would have been nice to have have one more but i think in the grand scheme of things it was worth it cuz we came came away appreciating that one a lot more than than let's say three if everything fell our way
0: yeah i mean i i often reminisce with my my current teams about you know we won in, in 15 but i i i felt like and you know i think even you and i have had this conversation privately before like that team that we had in 14 might have even been better than 15. Yeah. Um, We
1: we were a very good team.
0: (laughs) And yet on the final day, we were beaten by a better team that just outplayed us. And Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, you know, I remember kind of climbing that mountain in 2014 and thinking, gosh, we had, we had the best team we possibly could. We did everything we could and we still didn't come away with the big trophy. How are we ever going to do this again? But I think that that provided fuel to you and, you know, Warren Wood and and Joe Dorn and Nick Marino where they're like, all right, this this should have been ours last year. Now it's nobody's going to take it from us uh, this next year. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course, it was way more rewarding winning it that way. I don't I don't think it would. I don't think 2015 would have been nearly as satisfying had we won in 2014, you know?
1: Yeah, probably not. Yeah. And I mean, just the, the pressure buildup too. I, I don't know if you remember this, but when we played Hopkins in the quarters, this is probably my best memory of us together is I just didn't, didn't have a good day. Went down in doubles and singles. And I was favorite. We were probably favored in doubles and I was probably favored in singles. And I was like, I, I just was playing miserable tennis and you, you came out with me the next morning and we we got to work and by the by the end of I don't know how long we hit maybe an hour it wasn't very long but we just we we took the time to just put in a couple extra reps and it made such a difference i i started playing a lot better and more confidently and it that was a huge lesson for me just to see how quickly things can change day to day and appreciate the good days but also know that you can you can bounce back from the the tough days
0: Yeah. And Skylar, your listeners should know that was all you. That was not the head coach. Um, You're the one who, instead of me grabbing you by the collar and saying, you were awful. um, Let's get out there and make this right. You actually grabbed me by the collar and said, I was awful today and I owe more to my team. Let's get out there, do the work because the next two days I have to be good for them. Um, and that was incredibly impactful for me and something, again, I share with my teammates now, um, you know, that, that's the difference in a champion is someone who can, who has that sort of self-awareness and can recognize it and then be willing to do something about it.
1: Thank you for saying that. I do not remember approaching you. I remember it being the other way around. It was all (laughs) you. It was all you. Okay. I'll take credit for that all right i've i've enjoyed this i think we should probably shift over to some d3 versus d1 yeah how's that sound great sounds good do you think you would coach differently at the d1 level what do you what do you think is the difference
0: well you know i think d1 d1 is is hyper competitive um again that's not to say that d3 is not um i think i think Everybody wants to win and everybody's serious and everybody's really competitive. But I'd say D1 for the most part is, is hyper competitive. And in some cases, jobs depend on on how successful you are and, and what kind of outcomes you have. And I think that's maybe we're starting to see that creep in to some level at D3. but But really, it really hasn't registered on the radar yet. You know, we're, we're still charged with being educators and mentors and role models and, and, you know, bringing out the best in our student athletes. That's, that's always going to be number one. And then winning is, is, you know, is the bonus too. That's, that's, uh, that's, I would say secondary. I think those things get, for the most part, probably get reversed at the D1 level. Um, so then the question becomes, you know, would with that different emphasis, would would my style change? And I'd like to think that my style would not change. It'd still be value based coaching, you know, hard work, trying to build up uh, good habits and uh, being efficient. You know, all the things that I, I try to do at the D three level, I think I would try to try to do at the D one level. Um, the difference is just a lot more pressure. Um, on the recruiting side, and a lot more pressure with the bottom line to 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 bring in wins and to to stay relevant as a program.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, I, I think that's that's how I would answer that question. I mean it's it's uh, it's really the the sixty four thousand dollar question for uh, for Allison Swain, right? Who who made that jump was really the best in in collegiate tennis uh, at the small college level, and then jumped to to D1 and I think is doing a fantastic job at USC. But, you know, what, what would she tell you about the difference between, you know, coaching at Williams and coaching at, at USC? I'm sure she has said that she's made some pretty dramatic shifts in what she's doing as a result of culture. Um, but I, I'd like to think that, you know, if I made the jump, I'd try to make as, as few of those as I would
1: have to. Yeah, and I mean USC is no joke. It's cutthroat over there, for sure, for sure. I guess the reason I ask is, I mean, I I do a lot of reflecting on my own growth through D three, and I believe I grew tremendously as a tennis player. But I think it was even more impactful on my on my confidence, my my, and just my overall growth. And I'm not sure if I went to a D one program, I would. I would have had the same experience. So that's why I'm curious on coaches take and why I wanna have these conversations with coaches. To me I think the probably the biggest difference tennis wise is just the D one coaches get to have more time with their players. We we see what, three three weeks of each other in the fall and it's hard to it's hard to make those those leaps in your game when you're restricted to working with your coach just in the spring because it's more about maintenance and body management and all that, especially if you're in a NESCAC where you don't even start until, what is it?
0: Fe- I mean, yeah, February 15th, first practice, and usually first matches, not until March. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think everything you're saying is is on point. You know, I think, um, I think at the D1 level – you know, let's just talk about resources, you know, the types of facilities, the type of assistant mm-hmm. coaching that is available, strength and conditioning, um, equipment budgets. Um, you, we can go down a laundry list of, of resources that are available that if you take advantage of them, you can really maximize what you can be as, as an athlete, student athlete, where at the D3 level, you've got to work a lot harder to get that same sort of bang for your, for your buck. Mm -hmm. Is it possible? Absolutely. We've, you know, um, we've got lots of examples and that's the the reason for what you're doing today. But yeah, at, at, now the, the difference just becomes uh, for me in emphasis and this is why I love D3 so much is that, you know, in, in the scholarship, sort of power five programs there are there are a lot of a lot of student athletes who love what they're doing and are passionate about it and want to be the best see it as a pathway to a professional career so on and so forth but there are a lot who you know look at it as an obligation as a job mm-hmm. as I've got to keep the scholarship how do I keep my scholarship how do I punch the clock um, you know how do I just get through this and you know i i think at the d3 level i don't think anybody is really doing it who doesn't want to do it. It, it you know if if you don't want to do it it's it's a really easy out you can say hey um you know senior thesis is more important to me or hanging out with my buddies or pursuing another passion or whatever and there's there's really no there's no cost to that Um, but when you're you're a scholarship athlete and you're looking at a loss of, you know, part of your education being funded, that's gonna force you to sort of stay in there in a lot of cases, for some reasons which, you know, aren't aren't the best always.
1: And I think also at D three, like your your reason for your stay for staying might not necessarily be the sport. I feel like a lot of the guys might be burned out, but they like having the team environment. They like being They like playing for something. Would you agree with that? Yeah,
0: I would agree with that. I mean, I I think most of the guys who I've I've coached in my seventeen years really love to play tennis. But you know, you've had some teammates. um, You know, I've coached some guys who didn't didn't really love doing the drills. Didn't love you know certain aspects of the of the college tennis experience, but love the community, love the culture. And love the competition. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, those three C's right there are enough to really be a powerful motivator to still create a great teammate and a great college athlete, even if you don't love it. I mean, I I always talk about uh, Ron Wu, class of, uh, of 2011 um who basically hated tennis I feel like during his four years but was one of our you know one of our greatest players in our program. Yeah. He didn't he didn't love tennis but he hated to lose and he was the most competitive guy ever and that's what fueled him and if that works for you then great and he loved his teammates too and as as you know he's he's pretty much the organizer for all things Stags tennis alumni now. Yeah. So um so, you know, you you cannot be in love with the sport and still do some pretty special things. Um, and he's he's an example of that. But I think that's far less true at at the D1 level.
1: Yeah, I think I mean, there's so many there's so many D1 athletes. And I think of that percentage, I think very few actually try to at least go out and play tennis. I think a lot of them end up being burned out by the time by the time their four years are up of college college ball yep which is sad because they're they're great players
0: right and you know i feel like they've been given a gift and they they ought not to hide it you know it's it's especially our sport you know it's a sport that you can play until you're you're you know in your 80s or 90s and really have fun with it um don't you know don't put the rackets away when you graduate
1: yeah yeah definitely how often do you look at some D3 guys and think, wow, they're, they should really go try to, to play after college?
0: You know, I, eval- I probably evaluate it on a couple different levels, but I think the first level, and I know you'll chuckle at this, that I always evaluated on is, is not a talents or wins and losses or NCAA titles or any of that stuff that we can read on paper, but it's really mindset. You know, and I remember, you know, specifically looking at Warren, you know, after he won the triple crown in 2015 and thinking there's no chance this guy will play professional tennis. He's good enough. There's absolutely no doubt that he could go out and hang, but he does not have the mindset. He doesn't have the personality. um He's, he's not the right fit. And as you and I have talked, you know, to, to, to break through at low level professional tennis, you got to get used to losing, you know, 12 weeks in a row in the first round it's, and be okay with it. It's brutal. <laughs> um, uh, it's hard to be okay with. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, you know, I looked at, at a guy like, like you and thought, okay, maybe not as talented as Warren as a college player, but... This guy has the mindset. This guy, I think, is going to be okay losing 12 weeks in a row, first round, um, and still feel like he can get better and will improve, and he'll break through at some point. And, um, you know, it's that's easy to look in the rearview mirror, but that's, that's kind of how I evaluate these things. Like, you know, where's this player's mindset, and then where's his skill set? Mm-hmm. And then you match those two together and you say, okay, that's somebody who could make it. And I think, honestly, again, I think there have been very few guys in D3 who, who have both. You know, we can, you can think of some of the, the, the best players that you played against in your era. You know, Joey Fritz, phenomenal player. But would, would his skill set and his mindset translate to the professional game? I'd probably say No but i i think you know i think of uh some other guys um i even think of you know nikolai Parodi, who is playing for me right now and i look at the skill set i think he could he could play at the at a low level and do just fine um mindset mm-hmm. i'm not sure still figuring it out yeah but i think that's that's how the evaluation has has to go um and too often i think People just look at the player and say, oh, you know, he's got a complete game. Um, He's got the perfect game style, but they're not thinking about the head.
1: I think that's, that's very true. I, I would say Warren is way more talented and I'm still trying to get him to come out and play some tournaments with me. Well, and but that's the interesting thing about
0: Warren too, is like now he's matured so much in the last five years, like he's ready. Like he has the mindset. I I mean, I could see him going out and losing six weeks in a row and saying, I can beat these guys. Give me one more chance, you know? But five years ago, he he was nowhere close to being ready for that.
1: Now he is. Yeah, right. And I also look at, I think, D3 guys especially. I think if you're going to go out and play, you have to go in with not only the mindset that you're going to lose a lot, and expect it but know that it unless you're just doing it for fun and experience if you're going to like actually make a run try to do something you have to go in with the knowledge and understanding that it's just going to take a lot longer than you think it is when i look at my my own let's let's call it a career i don't really know if we can call it a career i came out with very little expectations and i mean i got my I guess I got my first point relatively quickly, and then the next six months after that, between injuries and and just not playing well, I I was still coaching, helping you out uh, with the Stags a little bit. But I just I I didn't know where where I was going. Right. And to reflect now, and I mean I've been through so so many disappointing moments in my in my tennis career and now at 26 to be able to say that I'm playing the best tennis of my life and granted the the tour shut down so I don't have (laughs) it don't have a chance to show anything (laughs) show anyone that but I mean it took me three and a half years to get here and I mean yeah I wanted to to quit like probably 15 times I I did quit last summer we talked about that just just understanding that it's it's just going to take time, and mindset gets overlooked far too often. And I wouldn't necessarily say I have the best mindset. I'm especially given my my 2019 where I imploded, but I've pretty much I've made a career out of just sticking around long enough for things to happen in in college and and now I'd say so.
0: But there's, there's some very powerful examples in our sport of, of players who have stuck around and broken through. You know, I think that Mm -hmm. that's, that should be a motivator. I mean, I think of the two Michigan guys, you know, Evan King and, and Jason Jung and these guys, they were, they were journeymen, but they hung in, they hung in, they hung in and they broke through. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's, you know, I think that's really rewarding, you know, for, for the guys who are, you are rewarded for being persistent and, you know, believing in themselves. And I just, I feel like there's this tension between, you know, making, making like a career in professional tennis, your, your passion, you almost have to crowd everything else out, right? You have to some extent, you have to crowd out some relationships you have to crowd out other other passions and interests if you really want to go all in. Mm-hmm. And yet, when you do that, you set yourself up to fail to some extent too. Because if it doesn't happen, you're like, oh, you know, I put all my eggs in this basket, and now I'm I'm underachieving. Mm-hmm. So I think I think s- such a big part of that is just kind of managing that tension between all right, how do I have a life, but make this what i'm doing you know my my real focus and really give it everything i i i have but still leave some room on the margin for some other things that are obviously really important
1: mm-hmm. i think that yeah that's that's where i i made my biggest mistakes I, i've watched my relationship fall apart and my my I have just have general personal struggles because i all i wanted to do was think about tennis and then at a certain point it just it, it drove me crazy um, where I needed to find some other part of my identity, which I wasn't really too familiar with having just, I mean, basically thought about tennis for eight straight years nonstop. Um, but even like in college, like you have the structure, you go to class and I needed to find, find something else to occupy my, my time and just distract my, right. my brain. Right.
0: But I I do think, you know, there's there's sort of a magic recipe there, right, where you're you're giving as much as you can to your career, but leaving some really important margins for other things in your life. And and those are the things that sort of keep you just relaxed enough in the pursuit of the big goal to really excel. Mm hmm. And you can overdo it, right? You can you can be just so wrapped up in that thing that you're pursuing that it sort of consumes you and overwhelms you. But if you can if you can mix kind of the other things in to keep you just a little bit looser in that pursuit, um, sometimes you can hit it just right.
1: Yeah, I if I mean if I could go back and do it all over again, I mean the only thing I would change would be to Really sit down with myself and and like take apart my college career and the moments where I was having the most success and feeling the most happy, and really writing those down and making sure I have those in order and have them in my life in order to succeed, um, or at least give myself the best chance to succeed. And I think that's a that's a very personal thing, and there's no one recipe, but just taking the time to really understand yourself. And for me, it was really, I mean, I went off to Hong Kong and that was like probably the, there were a lot of good things that came out of it, but I, I need to be close to my family. I need to have that, that support network. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, that's just Mm non-negotiable,
2: um,
1: at least right now. And that's something I found out the hard way. Yeah. Um, all right. And then like, we've had success in doubles as like from coming from D3, we've had, Seberger and Budarac. Do you think it's possible for a guy to come out and and do well in singles?
0: Yeah, I do. I do. Um, again, I, I, I the model that I see is not the model of Brandon uh, Nakashima. You know, who's going to play? <laughs> you know, one semester at uh, at UVA and then. Uh, we blink twice, and he's 130 in the world. It's ridiculous. It's it's going to be more along the lines of the Evan Kings and the Jason Jungs where we're just going to have somebody who who comes out, works his way up through the futures, and, and gets an opportunity to challenge her somewhere, and gets a good draw, and gets some points, and gets some confidence, and it's going to be a four, five, six year year journey. Um, and then somebody's going to break through and have some confidence and and feel like they can play at that level. So yeah, I I think it's coming, and uh, the reason I believe it's coming is I think Division three um, continues to get stronger and stronger, and I think mm-hmm. continues to to look a little a little more like the competition at the higher levels uh, each and every year. Um, so yeah, I think, I think we're going to, I think we're going to see somebody there. I don't know who it is, but, uh, some, somewhere down the line, we're going to see this.
1: Do you think there's a, a style challenge coming out of D3? Like, uh, like too much grinding versus being able to, to, uh, play that first strike tennis that's so popular now?
0: No, I don't. I think, I think we see a little different player coming into d 3 right that's kind of where it starts so i i think we're seeing more of the counterpuncher, grinder defensive style of player typically gravitates towards d3 but you know in the last decade we've seen some some players with some big time weapons in 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 division three you know i I think of guys like you know Grant Erkin at at Bowden, just like monster serve, monster forehand, like quick strike. You know he's he's your plus one poster boy right there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know I think uh, Warren had had skills. You know when he was playing that we hadn't really seen in Division Three. Uh, this uh, this kid who's a freshman at uh, Case Western, James Hopper. He's, he's got a big, big game that looks more suited to the D1, D1 style. So I, I, think, I, I think we're seeing more similarities in, in the levels at the top. Um, the question is, you know, what kind of players are we attracting to Division three? I think the coaching is there, as I said before. I think we have some of the finest coaches in the country at our level and i think they're they're coaching with a modern mindset where we're we're talking about you know we're looking at analytics we're looking at at plus 1 off the serve plus 1 off the return attacking from that point um, we're looking at patterns of play so i i think they're getting the good coaching it's just uh what is the player development what is the, what are the players like coming in and what does that development look like during the four years
1: mm-hmm. and then like you said just the right mindset for sure. And that's, that's the big
0: thing again to me, because I think most, most of the top D3 players that come out, you know, have, have a lot of opportunities outside of tennis typically, you know, Mm -hmm. have in many cases, great jobs or great graduate level opportunities available to them, which, um, which is a serious competing priority to playing low-level a uh, professional tennis. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I have a question from Matt Saber. He he wants to know how you've managed to keep such high standards amongst all your teams, um, even when things have gone a little out of hand. Is it does it start with recruiting, or I mean, I can say for me coming in as a as a freshman, that everything kind of felt in place already. And I just kind of slotted in with the culture. How have you been able to create that?
0: Um, and is Matt ref so Matt is referring to culture, like creating high standards in terms of uh, sportsmanship and how we represent the yep. institution, each other. Yeah. I think I, I really think the key to that is, is really getting your players to, to buy in to how important that is as a value. And I think I've been able to communicate what my personal values are and that they're part of what I do professionally. Um, and you know, being generous, being compassionate, being a hard worker, um, being decent and civil to others, all these things, uh, are important to me personally. And I think in the workplace are really, you know, integral. And, um, you know, I think, I think we've been fortunate because usually, you know, coming in as a freshman, somebody will overstep a bound or, or, um, you know, violate a team rule or something like that. And once they're corrected one time by a fellow teammate, or a coach, I think they, they understand what the culture is and what the parameters are. And then they almost become, we've noticed they become sort of custodians and stewards of that culture. And I think, you know, I think that's the most important thing. It's, I've never felt like in our program, it's been a top down, you know, this is the way I, I see our program, everybody fall in line. I've always felt like, our players have, have policed that and protected it, um, very, very carefully, which has made my job of preserving culture just a lot easier.
1: I just, I, I always felt like we just had a a bunch of nice guys on the team. Made it a lot easier. We all got along at least with my, my four years there. I,
0: I think, I think generally that's absolutely true. And, um, but you know, occasionally we've all played with personalities that have challenged us. And I, I think it's how the rest of the team handles those challenging personalities that can can really define the team culture. Because we all know, you know, one person can, can create a toxic environment. It just takes one. So, how they're, I guess coached and mentored and, um, checked by their teammates, uh, becomes really important.
1: Yeah. I wanted to take a, a moment if, if you'd like to just kind of say a quick something about the seniors, um, and how the, the season went down It's a real bummer. I, I was with you kind of coaching them their freshman year and to, to see their, their careers end in such a way, it just broke my heart.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's certainly really disappointing on, on a couple of levels. I mean, this was, uh, I feel like a senior class, um, much like the senior class that you played with, um, uh, when you were a junior who really felt like, um, this was their, their national title to win.
2: Yeah.
0: And we're really embracing that process and that journey and that challenge. Um, so I think they, they really had some sights set on that, you know, over five, five seniors, I think, uh, uh, maybe three of them had already done their senior thesis in the fall so they could really put their attention on this pursuit of a national championship in the spring. In the case of, uh, of Nico and, and Daniel Park, uh, cap co-captains of our team, I think, I think it was particularly uh difficult for them and with nico you know uh if if you look at kind of our record books you'll see even with three and a half seasons uh he accomplished more than 99 percent of uh stags tennis players in a four-year career it's awesome Um, it's just uh it's scary to think what he would have accomplished uh with another three months of tennis to play but all that said, um, I think I'm I'm very proud of the maturity of our guys, who I think fairly quickly got over the disappointment of a, a season that that never materialized, and pivoted to what really matters, and that is, you know, staying healthy and safe, and you know, being with family, and you know, making sure that this this current thing that we're kind of living through. Um, is uh is stabilized and um you know i think i think maybe years from now we may look back and say oh gosh you know that was a real opportunity and i'm sure the guys on emory's team are are looking at it the same way uh as their you know their title to to have lost but um in in this moment that we're in right now there, there are they're much bigger things to think about
1: very true yeah Nico's been a scary player. That's for sure. Okay. Do you wanna let everyone know how many gold balls you have?
0: Um (laughs) shoot, I thought this was private between you and me. Well, I'm um I'll say this. You don't ask I'll say this. I have I have twenty five gold balls. Um, but I'll also say that none of them are singles national championships. They're all doubles national championships, which means that I've been fortunate enough to play with some fantastic doubles partners over the years
1: you and you and kathy are pretty pretty scary team i'd say again
0: i got a great partner uh and she's she's the difference maker so yeah but it's been fun and you know skylar one of the one of the things about the sport that has given me probably more joy than even coaching is family tennis and uh, the ability to get out and, and play, you know, father son with two of my sons and husband and wife with my wife um, at a at a national level is uh, is just precious.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps you going. One of the things that keeps me going. Uh, you're a pretty competitive person.
0: Yeah, I love it. I still I still love getting out there. It's the only thing that's keeping me going during this this crazy crisis we're in right now is being outdoors and you know breathing the air and getting my heart rate up and and uh and hopefully um you know hitting some balls with a family member with proper social distancing
1: <laughs> yeah six feet or more right that's it yeah i i heard there people were starting to bring out like eight balls and and only and initial them and only touch their initial balls i think that's that's the new thing
0: yeah, I don't know, you know, I don't know what the science is behind the hygiene there. Um, but yeah. um, I saw some flaws. Yeah, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll see. Yeah. All right. Uh,
1: well, I'll let you go to your dinner. Let's just we'll wrap this up with with the three questions I, I'd like to finish with. And I'm excited for the first one, because I finally get to find out what unhealthy food you would turn into a superfood.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad I listened to Udis's podcast start to finish. That gave me a little bit of a, you know, a primer on, on this one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've got two kind of vices on the food side, and I think you know them both, but, um, I love, I love the really sugary cereals, like, Captain Crunch and, and Tricks and Lucky Charms. I mean, I'm a guy in my uh, 50s and I, that's my, still my dessert of choice. So that's my one food vice. And the other food vice would be uh, flaming hot Cheetos.
1: Oh, I didn't know that one.
0: So if either of those that's became insane. a superfood, then man, I am, I'm going to be an elite athlete someday.
1: <laughs> when you're, when you're six, when, when you're in exactly. your 60s. Exactly. Do you have any advice for d3 athletes that are considering playing professionally?
0: Yeah, I do, and that is just to to believe in it. I think
1: yeah, you know, I I felt like it
0: was never a doubt in your mind. I I felt like from the from the moment you stepped on our campus, you were thinking I'm going to play some professional tennis. I don't know how for how long, but I'm going to play some professional tennis and I I don't think there are enough athletes out there student athletes out there who are giving themselves that chance to do so and the big reason i think is structural there is such a focus on what your career looks like from the moment you step on uh, a small liberal arts college campus you know you're thinking about uh, an internship uh, in your summer of uh, sophomore year and and then a, a better internship as a junior and a job offer before your first class senior year, and I think all that stuff kind of crowds out the possibility that hey, maybe part of finding myself would be to use my athletic gifts uh, and talents and and try them at the highest possible level. You know, Skylar, that's why I'm always pushing my guys to try to play during the summer and and not take the internship, mm-hmm. even though I'm supportive when they yeah. get them, uh, because. Uh, yeah, I think, and and I love what Alex Brenner did, who just said, "Hey, I I can I can put the career on hold, but I'm going to go out there and and try to achieve what I can at, at the very highest level." And I don't think there are enough of our greatest D three athletes out there who give themselves that chance.
1: Yeah, I I agree. Um, I also would say that you're giving me way too much credit. <laughs> when when I stepped on campus as a freshman, all I wanted to do was start. I wasn't thinking about playing. Were your sights
0: that high? I thought it was like I hope I play top ten
1: on this team. <laughs> no, I I just want honestly, I just wanted to be playing matches. That was that was the only thing that was that was uh, pushing me. I remember the the Wash U match my freshman year specifically. Like that was, that was the, that's probably the biggest match of my career, honestly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If I had lost that, I don't know if we, if we'd be talking (laughs) right now.
0: Uh, I think we probably would be. Yeah.
1: In my, in my head, that's, that's, that was the biggest match of my career. I, I thought maybe one of the biggest
0: matches of your career was, was, uh, Williams as a freshman.
1: Uh, when I rolled when my you ankle. You rolled
0: your ankle trying to <laughs> chest bump one of your teammates.
1: Yeah. That was a good yeah. time. That,
0: that's a separate podcast altogether, right?
1: <laughs> well, is there is there video evidence of it? We might have to do a deep dive into into a- how it actually not, happened.
0: But maybe you can interview Robbie Arani and and he can tell you about his experience doing the same thing in player intros.
1: Well, at least I'm not alone. But then, yeah, you ban you ban player intro jumps after that. Fortunately, I left my mark.
0: Fortunately, the ITA banned player intros altogether, which is great. They took it out of my hands. So
1: okay, well, uh, good for the ITA. Well, I'd like to think that I'd like to think that I I had something to do with that. Left my mark exactly. Um, All right. Last question is: How do you define success? I love
0: you know i love coach john wooden's definition is is the best it's um the peace of mind of of knowing that you've done your very best and um you know we keep talking about the uh, the journey uh the actual prize itself um ends to, ends up being a little bit anticlimactic and uh you know just to bring back the the that definition of success to what we accomplished as a team this year when we said our goodbyes with our team this year they 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 really weren't talking about hey this was the year we were going to win the national championship they were really talking about this is so tough to not have the next 3 months with all of you you know and the the journey and the growth and the fun and the laughter and the wins and losses and all that together is, is what makes it so special. So, you know, again, I would define success as as that journey. And it's, as Wooden says, the peace of mind of knowing that you've done your absolute best as part of that journey.
1: Love it. I knew you were going to bring John Wooden up at least once. I had to do it once. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was waiting. I was waiting. Well, thanks for taking the time, Paul. Thanks, Skyler. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Paul. He's really good at talking, isn't he? Uh, I just wanted to wrap this week's podcast up with a couple of announcements. Uh, If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, I don't know what you're doing. You should probably do that right now. And if you want to tell your friends while you're at it, go ahead and do that too. That would be much appreciated. Trying to, to help the D3 community out here. If you liked hearing what Paul had to say, you can follow him and his wife Kathy at Settles Tennis on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And while you're at that, check us out at D3 to Pro on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on D3 to Pro.